welcome back to Making It. My name is Mirabelle, and I'm the creator and host of this podcast. Today's episode features a conversation with Kate Nishimura. She's a Japanese-Canadian composer whose works are frequently performed at many music education conferences and festivals, both nationally within Canada and it's just really all over the world. We've never actually met in person. However, we are both alumni from the University of Toronto. I even performed her music in the U of T wind ensemble while I was there, and we have a bunch of mutual friends. So her name just kept showing up for me everywhere, and that got me really curious about her and her work. Kate walks us through her whole creative process, but also the more admin side of things where she has to communicate with band directors or the people who are commissioning her for work. All of this actually led to her burning out, and so she talks a bit about that, what it's like to have to keep pushing through sometimes and how she's only now slowly recovering, how nature, forest therapy, being a forest guide actually kind of ties everything together. So listen for that. I thought that was very insightful. If you happen to be part of this music education world or concert band, music student life kind of thing, I would love to know if you've ever played Kate's music because honestly, I think she's one of the only composers who I've actually had the opportunity to at least be able to put a face to the name and play their music and and know kind of where the inspirations come from. So it's very cool and I'm just curious about that if if you've had that same experience. I know this introduction is becoming pretty long, but I just wanted to add one more note that I just am really grateful for all the work that Kate is putting into this career of hers because not just for herself, but she's also representing the woman BIPOC composers or, you know, musicians community. And honestly, I'm just really proud of that. So let me know what you think about this episode. Check out Kate's music and her podcast in the links below. Rate and review the podcast, this one. Sorry, I'm saying podcast a lot. (laughs) Wherever you're listening or leave a comment if you're watching this on YouTube and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to making it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Um, as we were just saying, like I we've never met, but also it feels like we have because of our yeah. you know online presence and our mutual friends and everything. So Yeah. It's a small world. <laughs> it is really small. I'm really excited. Um I because I remember I played your piece in Wind Ensemble when I was at U of T and I didn't know who you were at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm in Keena Granis's discord server and then i saw you join that and then yeah. you gave your little introduction i'm like wait that, that's hang you. on a second <laughs> <laughs> i know you kind yeah. of <laughs> yeah it was lake superior suite that you played right yeah yeah that was really that's fun. awesome i love your yeah music. that was that was such a good um experience getting to work with the u of t group on that piece it's such a special piece to me so it's really cool that you were involved in that yeah yeah, it's uh your music has a lot of like nature influences, right? It does. <laughs> Scenes. Yes. Yeah. Can we can you actually just like give a little brief history of like, you know, how you got to where you are now, what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. Um so what I'm doing now is I'm a full-time composer. Um I publish all my own music 
And uh, primarily I write music for wind ensemble or concert band, symphonic band, whichever name you want, but big group of band instruments. Um, mm -hmm. That's my favorite um, ensemble to write for. Um, I've been playing in concert bands myself since I was like 11 or 12. Um, and my background actually is not in composition. It's in music education. Mm. So I also studied at the University of Toronto, um, but I, I studied music education and I had it in my mind for a long time that being a band director, being a music educator was the thing that I was going to do. And um, I always wanted to be a composer. I started writing music when I was a kid, um, but I, I never really imagined that that was something uh, financially feasible as a career. Um, I hadn't seen very many examples, if any, of uh, composers with names like mine who, who looked like me, who were writing music for wind ensemble. Um, you know, I started playing in bands when I was in, in elementary school, all through elementary school, high school, university. I didn't play much music written by women, especially people of color. So I think, yeah, it took, it took a little bit of um, mental gymnastics to kind of wrap my head around the idea that maybe I could actually just be a composer because I wanted to and mm. um, that I could change course, even though I had in my mind that I was going to do one thing. Um, so that's, I mean, it's, you asked for a brief summary. It's kind of a long story, um, mm -hmm. but I mean, going, going further back, um, I got my start in writing music through songwriting. And um, I think some people are surprised to hear that about me now because I don't have a career as a singer-songwriter at all. <laughs> um, it's just something that I did when I was a teenager um, as a form of self-expression, as a form of communicating and making sense of the things that were going on around me. And um, I never played those songs in front of people i never played them outside of my bedroom with the door closed barricaded in with pillows you know mm -hmm. so um yeah i mean when i any chance i get to kind of reflect on that and what that used to feel like and then compare that to now where i have um students and professionals interacting with my music all over the world every day it's like Amazing. kind of unbelievable yeah um so you could say that it's like been a dream of mine for most of my life um and to make a living writing music for others to play is really really fulfilling and amazing so yeah. i love it Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> do you have like little like manuscript did you write music on manuscript paper or like have it transcribed by somebody as when you were a kid like do you have <laughs> that yeah so um my parents found um my mom keeps everything and in like boxes of stuff and at some point last year the year before she found um some papers of mine that I had scribbled down like pieces of music that um weren't real uh like mm -hmm. they weren't real music notation um no one else would be able to interpret it i basically made my own like set of symbols that i understood to mean you know um 
the music goes up, the melody goes up, the melody goes down. Like I didn't know how to write music. <laughs> so I just made something up. Um, and yeah, I mean, even now I, I start out my process involves a lot of handwritten stuff. I don't write out the entire score for every single thing that I do, but it's a <laughs> lot of um, almost graphics, graphic score type stuff where mm. there's like squiggles and um, shapes and lots of arrows and mixed in with words, mixed in with proper music notation. And um, actually, okay, wait, I'll just... I know the people listening won't see, but here's like an example of there's just like a squiggle at the bottom <laughs> of this manuscript paper. Like what on earth does that mean? But I know that that was meant to depict the contour of this particular piece that I was working on um, in a non-musical way, more of like a narrative way. So oh, that's so cool. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's how it started when I was a kid um, because I didn't have formal music instruction um and so i made up a language that made sense to me mm -hmm. and i guess in a sense i'm still doing that it's just that i also am communicating it in a way that other people can <laughs> read <laughs> yeah. yeah that's so cool yeah as a as a kid like i found recently ish recent i say recent i this is like last year or whatever whenever i was doing like a big clean Mm -hmm. Um, but like, I also found like, I found manuscript paper, a simple little melody probably isn't good, but like my mom had transcribed it for me like, piece by Mirabelle. That's so sweet. <laughs> it's so cute. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Is anybody else in your family musical? Um, no, but they're all music appreciators, mm -hmm. right? Like when I was growing up, my parents had music playing in the house all the time. We went on long drives because my grandparents lived up in cottage country and we went to visit them. It was a few hour drive. So there was always like radio on or we would put CDs of Broadway shows or whatever. Like there was just music around all the time. So even though uh, my parents weren't musicians themselves, um, they definitely supported that interest and um, took me to like, the orchestra kid shows and mm -hmm. the local theater and stuff like that. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I grew up kind of around the arts in an indirect way, more in like the audience way, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, yeah. my, my brother is like, I guess an amateur musician. Like he can strum some chords on a guitar, um, nice. just for fun. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's definitely, it's just me that kind of went the, um, more formal route and mm -hmm. certainly the only one that, made a career of it so. yeah you're the pro yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what oh hold on, what instrument did you play in band i played the bass clarinet oh yeah okay. um so i started on the clarinet um that's you know you couldn't start a kid on on the bass Basically. clarinet that's not it's like as tall as you when you're a kid <laughs> it it certainly was my parents were like what Why? <laughs> um, yeah no I started on the clarinet and I, I didn't have a lot of success with it I really struggled um at the beginning and um it's funny to think that probably of those people in elementary school I can't imagine that anyone else is like still playing the instrument that they started <laughs> on you know um and I had such a hard time back then um but yeah so my my music teacher at the time it's like, we need someone to play the bass clarinet. Um, there's only one in the whole school. And something about that appealed to me, like being 
um, a little bit more independent as a kid. I liked to do my own thing. And um, I liked the idea that it was just me um, Mm -hmm. on that instrument. So uh, yeah, I really fell in love with playing in band once I started playing the bass clarinet because um, bass lines are so much fun. And I improvised a lot. Uh, Oh, really? Yeah. I I mean, I had to be told a couple of times, like, just play what's on the page. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's boring playing whole notes when you're a kid, you know, when you're playing in the low end of the band. It's Mm. um, not always the most interesting parts. So um, I like to think that that also contributed to, like, what made me become a composer a little bit because I was... um, already thinking about how could I make this more interesting right Mm. and so now that I'm writing for middle school bands high school bands I try to not give anyone whole notes the entire time (laughs) (laughs) oh that's nice that's like a nice uh, redemption kind of story (laughs) yeah I know I've been there myself right so I know what it's like yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah the improvising part like do you have do you have like a composition process now or is it maybe it's different probably every time? Yeah, it's different every time. Um, there are some similarities though. So most of my work the past five years has been commissions and I'm very, very grateful that that's the case um, to be in a position where I'm paid to write custom music for people. That's seriously the dream. Um, but it does mean that I have to take into consideration somebody else's requests or parameters or limitations or whatever when I'm approaching a new project, as opposed to a personal project where it's just, you know, I'm following my own inspiration or I can do kind of whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the process with commissions is just a little bit more um, intricate kind of at the beginning. I have to map out like what the commissioner is looking for and um kind of work within that um but whether it's a commission or a personal project i tend to start outside <laughs> um, oh, yeah. i like to go for big long walks and think about um maybe a story or a feeling or a a place that i want to transport listeners to or um yeah, just I kind of think through and feel like what I might want to write about. And I find it difficult to come up with ideas um, sitting at a desk or even sitting at a piano or something like I I have come to learn this about myself, that being in motion is an important aspect of the generation of ideas for me. Um, Why do you so, think that is? I, well, I feel most myself uh, when I'm out in nature. So I think um, being inside, I mean, you can only see a small view of my space, but there's just, there's plants everywhere. There's like nature art everywhere, photography and stuff. And um, I do my best to create an inspiring space even in my house, but there's nothing that compares to being in a cathedral of pine trees or, um, (laughs) you know, my partner and I live down the road from a large wetland area and um, the wildlife that we share this space with um, is very inspiring to me. So I think, yeah, just being outside, um, I can really tap into my surroundings, but also my inner, 
I don't know, it sounds cliche almost to say inner child, but I, like when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time outside by myself, just like digging in the mm-hmm. soil and touching all the leaves of every plant and comparing how they felt. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. um, those early songs that I wrote or pieces that I composed with my own musical language um, that I referenced a few minutes ago, like they were all about animals, you know, and I think that's just what I've been inspired by the most over the course of my life. And so, yeah, getting out and connecting um, with that side of the world, I guess, is really helpful. But um, even when I lived in a city, like I lived in Toronto for over a decade and there's nature there, but it's not the same uh, as where I am now. And um, even then going for a walk, even just on the streets of the city helped me come up with ideas. So maybe it's not just nature. I think it's also um, when I allow energy to move through my body, I can process things a little bit better than when I'm, when I have to be still. Um, And even when I was a kid and I was in school, like I was never disruptive, but I was always doing something in addition to what we were supposed to be doing. So whether that was doodling or fidgeting or like kicking my feet under the desk or whatever it was. Like, I think I've just, I've always been, um, yeah, there's some activity going on that helps me come up with stuff or, or retain information or communicate a little better or something like that. So yeah. Well, that's awesome. (laughs) That's really cool. But that's how that, how you get your brain going and how you get inspired. I think that like music and nature is really intertwined. I think, I think that, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of music that I enjoy also draws a lot of inspiration from nature and mm-hmm. that seems to be the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. I mean from there, I mean I, I do the bulk of my work inside. <laughs> it's yeah. just that the initial <laughs> ideas kind of come from nature and then um yeah, I I improvise a lot uh, at the piano and um I actually just record myself improvising. So that I don't feel the pressure in the moment to write something down. Mm. Um, I think a lot of composers and songwriters that are kind of just getting started often encounter this problem where like by the time they document the idea, by the time they write it down or notate it or record it or whatever the process is, um, maybe they've lost that initial idea a little bit. And so I've learned that if I just press record, you know, I don't share those recordings with anyone. I don't do anything with them, but they're just documentation for me so that later on I can go back and revisit and see if there were any ideas that stood out to me that I want to go back and um, explore a little bit more. Uh, sometimes in a in an hour of recording, there's only a few minutes that are, you know, usable, but um, that's still worth it for the trade-off of having that flow of creative energy not be interrupted by the necessity of like let me write that down um yeah yeah the amount of times i kind of i wish that like i just had a microphone recording 24 7 just you know to pick (laughs) up any accidental ideas (laughs) totally (laughs) yeah just like humming as you're walking around like oh i wish someone got that that was cool (laughs) yeah and by the time you take your phone out to record it's like it's gone it's gone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I do my best to like create a setting for myself where, okay, I'm, I think I'm going to brainstorm a little bit here. I'm going to push record. Um, mm. I forget sometimes, but yeah, I do my best. <laughs> I, I think for me, it's that 
if I'm improvising on piano, like, because I do the same thing, but um, recording-wise, it's only if I land on something that I, like, really like during that mm -hmm. improv session, and then yeah. I hit record. But I think if I start with hitting record, I know, like, I'm so aware that that's happening. It's there that, like, that creates the pressure for me already. Right. <laughs> I gotta, like, forget about it, and then I can do it, but, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah. So then, so once you're back inside and you've got your ideas flowing, do you, do you, what do you do from there? <laughs> yeah. So that would be when like this kind of thing comes into play. So I, I, once I have an idea that I think I want to work with, um, I will usually write it down in words. Um, so as an example, I just wrote this piece. Uh, last week, I finished it up and it it's all about the movement of wind and um, how these big forces of wind come from the mountains and then they go kind of into the valley and um, through the rocks and over the rivers. And I was kind of imagining this story of personifying the wind, like mm -hmm. what would it feel like to be the wind going on that journey? And then what would it feel like? Um, to maybe interact with other elements of the space and then what would that sound like and so i just list off lots of key words of how it might feel um other you know aspects of the landscape that might be there uh is there you know the sound of the wind through the trees is going to be different than the sound of the wind off of a cliff or um like lapping over the water and I don't know. I, I kind of just explore all of these concepts before I even write any music down. Um, I just kind of, yeah, get a clearer vision in, in mind. Um, I find that that's really helpful prep work um, so that when I do sit down to start plugging in um, notes, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I just have a sense of structure. Uh, I don't write beginning to end, but I have a sense of like, what the overall thing is. Is there going to be one big peak in the middle? Uh, is, it, is it a gradual build towards the end? Do we start really big and fall away? And, you know, those kinds of, I guess, visual or um, sensory based things are really helpful for me in my process. And then after all of that, uh, I do get into just writing notes and rhythms and stuff. Um, and I use a program called Dorico. Um, for music notation and I use that to create a score and parts for all of the instruments that are involved. Um, I use Note Performer um, to create audio reference tracks. Um, it's not the same as like live musicians with real instruments um, but it's not too bad. It's better than the built-in MIDI so um, yeah and and then the fun part is orchestrating all the ideas deciding which instruments are going to get which parts and moving all the pieces around with the piece that I just finished last week. At the last minute, I decided to cut a chunk of music that was supposed to be for the end and put it near the beginning. And it completely altered the feel of the whole thing. So wow. I don't know, my process is a little bit messy, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm learning to just embrace it. And um, I've been doing this full time for five years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess if it hasn't changed, like if my chaotic 
messy process hasn't changed and I'm still creating music that feels genuine and represents the needs of the people who commission me, then it must be working, even though it feels yeah. a little bit crazy. So <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I never really thought about, um, you know, how you could take, move around all the pieces in your, in your compositions. That's really cool. Yeah. I actually write on sticky notes sometimes or like pieces of paper. Um, I think, I think like movie editors do this, uh, like film crew people, um, when you're making a storyboard, like you can actually write kind of events on sticky notes or cards and then like move them around visually to help get a sense of the overall structure. Mm -hmm. Um, and I find that that is helpful as well, just so that you don't have to keep it all in mind. You can see a little more visually, like these are all the sections of music that I have. I have this theme, I have this counter melody, you know, and then play around with the order, play around with like transitions from one to the next. And, um, I found with that piece recently that that I could come up with a transition from this section to this section and then substitute a new section and create a transition that's just as effective to that. And so sometimes I create, I think maybe more problems for myself than I need to, because I'm like, I could do anything. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I'm playing around with, with visual tools like that to kind of help in the process a bit. That's so smart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cause like when I, make a video edit like for a like I recently just shot a video of Calgary Wind Symphony for their concert and so I'm putting together like a little promo video for them and like you can it it, I mean it's just all laid out in the video editor like in Premiere you can see all the clips and everything and it is fun to just like drag things around and reorder things you know Um, but I never actually thought about that in terms of composition (laughs) you know like making it visual in that way Mm -hmm. that's cool I mean different things are going to work for different people and not everyone works that way but um yeah I found it to be helpful (laughs) (laughs) yeah and also like the thing about uh, uh, giving parts to different instruments and stuff Mm -hmm. more people I know just like have an idea of the sound that they want and the instruments that they want it to want to play it like mm-hmm. already before they have the melodies and stuff written out, like they have the instrument in mind first, but it seems like for you, you have that, that comes a little bit later. Yeah, it depends. Um, there are certain pieces where like I have a melody in mind and I know for sure that it's going to be on the trumpet or the clarinet or whatever. Like I sometimes mm-hmm. I do have a really clear idea of exactly what this thing sounds like in my head. Um, but I would say most of the time, I don't know, I kind of operate on feelings. Like, yeah. how does it feel? How do I want the audience to feel in this moment as they experience this part of the piece? Or even how do I want the musicians to feel? Is this part a little bit stressful? <laughs> um, and can I use that intentionally to my advantage to create a moment of tension? And can I choose a key signature that I know is idiomatic to the people that are playing versus something that is going to, I don't know, challenge them a little bit. The outcome. Can I make their lives harder? <laughs> yeah. Like, I think the, and, and like, not just to be like, like, oh, like, let's just make it hard for everybody, but, <laughs> but to 
to actually use that as a tool to create a different experience for everybody involved. Um, because the same chord progressions, the same melodies um, feel different in a different um, tonality, in a different key. I mean, even this applies to songwriting too. Like, I'm sure you've experienced this before where you play something and then you put a capo on the guitar and you're like, feels different up here, you know? <laughs> and sometimes those choices really impact um, the, the end result. I guess. So yeah, I feel like I went on a tangent there, but yeah, I, I definitely, sometimes I have a specific kind of instrumentation in mind as I'm creating it. But a lot of the time I just know what I want it to maybe feel like in that moment. And then I experiment a little bit with um, how to best create that moment um, using different colors and textures from within the ensemble that I'm working with. Yeah. It's a that's lot of really fun. Cool. Yeah. It's really yeah. fun. How did your first commission happen? Like, how did you kind of build all that up? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, so I was teaching um, and I was teaching middle school band and it was very loud and very <laughs> exhausting, but amazing. I loved my students and I had really great colleagues and um, I was very passionate about that work as well. Um, but so I was I was making arrangements for the bands that I was conducting and I was testing out um, ideas for my own pieces with my students and getting a sense of uh, what they liked and what they were looking for in the music that we were playing. You know, I asked for feedback a lot, even in music that wasn't mine. You know, we we're playing some arrangement for a, a concert and I was always very interested to know from the students, what do you like about this? What do you not like about this? You know, who in this, in this ensemble wishes that they had more, uh, more to do or, you know, and so I, I really learned how to write for that kind of purpose um, from the hands-on experiences that I had working with those kinds of musicians. Um, so I started writing more for that level and um, trying to spread the word to other music teachers. Um, I still, at that point, I, I really didn't envision um, the widespread kind of uh, exposure that I have now um, in the music education world, but I just wanted more local music teachers to play my music. I wanted to see if I could reach more musical communities within Canada. Um, you know, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, growing up and playing in all these ensembles and not playing music by living composers or not playing music by people of color or women and um, just young people doing something fresh and genuine. Like I, I kind of felt like there was a, a void. <laughs> there was something missing in the music that was available to, especially to young bands. Um, and so I just started spreading the word with that in mind. Like, Hey, if, if you're looking for music to play, that's by a local composer, you can tell your students that, you know, the person who wrote this, mm -hmm. you can like, I will come visit your school or I'll, um, do a video call with your band if they're on the other side of the country and you can put a face to the name and the kids can ask questions about how the music was made. And, um, people just were really excited about that. And now 
we do everything on on <laughs> Zoom and Google and Discord and Twitch and all that. Like yeah. everything is on video and everything. But at the time, like 2016, you know, that was not nearly as common. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was a bit of just the novelty of getting to work with the composer live and getting some of that insight and knowing that I was not just a composer, but an educator as well. I didn't have the problems of, you know, our band can't play this, like this is too hard or they don't know this scale yet, or they don't know, you know, like I was able to just really cater to their needs, I think. Mm -hmm. And so um, people started to ask me if I would write for their school. And that's kind of just where it all began. I I never really solicited that. Like I, I didn't say I'm looking for people to commission me. It just, I would say it happened pretty organically. They just asked and I said, sure, I'll try. And <laughs> it it grew more and more to the point where I was starting to feel guilty that I was not giving 100% to my teaching job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I also felt like I wasn't able to give 100% to my creative projects either because I was a full-time teacher and it just, it was way too much to manage. Um, and I ended up getting a pretty big commission Um, from the University of Portland, and they wanted to involve schools all over the continent, um, all over North America. And I just felt like I couldn't say no to that. And so I said yes. And it, long story short, I ended up leaving my teaching position and deciding to uh, see if I could make it work as a Mm -hmm. composer. And as I said, that was five years ago. So um, (laughs) Wow. I'm doing it. <laughs> wow. Look at you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but being an educator is still super important to me. And that's why I love doing those um, residencies, you know, virtually and in person, getting to connect with the people that are playing my music. And um, I still feel like I'm an education minded mm-hmm. person. And that really drives a lot of how and why I compose. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> Do you think that like when you took that step, when uh, the University of Portland offered that to you, was it because I, I think I would just assume that I would feel like there's no going back if if I do this. <laughs> but obviously, like you had your teaching job and you could probably fall back on that. Right. But, yeah. Not that specific job, um, mm-hmm. because I I left at what I think was probably a relatively inconvenient <laughs> time <laughs> for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the teaching certificate is not something that goes away. Like I, I have a, a bachelor of education, a bachelor of music education. Like those are um, credentials that are going to exist forever. And the experiences that I have in the classroom and being a clinician and being a conductor and be, like all of, all of those skills, um, I, I did feel that, yeah, if this doesn't work out as a composer, I can always go back to teaching. Um, not the exact same job, but I, I could mm-hmm. find work in some capacity doing something. Um, mm-hmm. Or I would maybe do a blend of maybe I would um, teach part time or I could teach privately. I could open a studio or I could uh, lean more into doing like guest workshops and um, that kind of thing. So I... I never felt like it's all or nothing. Like if this doesn't work, I'm totally screwed. You know, I, I never felt like that, but it, 
I was very conscious that if I had a plan B, like if I gave myself a backup plan that I would use it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to really create, um, I guess a, a blank slate for myself where I could just really give it my all. And, uh, you know, because if you have something else, that's a little bit easier. Most of us, I think are inclined to do that, right? If there's a smoother path, we'll probably take that. Um, so I, yeah, I wanted to really like give myself the opportunity to try and not have anything else. And now I've built back in lots of education type of work in addition to my creative work. And Mm -hmm. I do public speaking type things with schools. And I feel that I've achieved a pretty decent balance of the things that are important to me. Um, but it was definitely messy at first and it was scary to make that leap. And I, there was no guarantee that anything was going to work. I was certainly concerned that I was not going to make enough money doing it. I knew that I would enjoy it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but could I live off of it was the concern, right? So it took a lot of work and a lot of making connections and maintaining relationships with the right people and um, taking initiative to go and be in the communities that I was trying to work with and for. So um, lots and lots of work, but yeah. uh, I'm proud of what I've built. I'm happy about it. Yeah, it's super cool to see, like, as you've mentioned already, like you're a woman composer with Asian background and like that yeah like I've never played aside from your music like I've never (laughs) (laughs) I've never played that in band in school or anything um so yeah it is really cool to see what you're doing and like how you're doing it so well (laughs) thank you I appreciate that yeah it's really meaningful to me to get the feedback from students especially um who see themselves represented in in my music you Mm -hmm. know and um for teachers to send me a message and tell me my kids love your music and I teach in a neighborhood where there's a lot of you know people from a variety of demographics a lot of minority you know students and um we just so appreciate having music that reflects our diverse society and our community and like those things mean so much to me way more than the praise of like other composers or professors or like getting awards. Like, I don't really care about that stuff. Um, It's, am I making an impact on the next generation of musicians? Because I know what it was like to be that kid that was the other and to feel empowered by music on your music stand. Like that's a huge, it seems like a small thing, um, but I know that it, it really does make an impact in those communities. So that's the most, fulfilling aspect of what I do for sure yeah that's that's amazing (laughs) um so how did you learn how to publish your music and like do that whole process of getting your music out there I am still learning (laughs) (laughs) um I publish my own music um primarily because I don't want to give any of my money to a publishing company um, the average cut that a composer makes on a sale of like print music that's distributed by a publisher is 10%. That's oh. so little. And yeah. there are, there are publishers now they're independent publishers or smaller publishing companies that, um, are working to 
kind of change those ratios, um, which is amazing. But still, as the creator of your work, you know, I think that you should maintain control over what happens with that work, Mm -hmm. Um, maintaining all the rights to it, getting to make all the decisions about, you know, who has access to what and when things are published and who they're shared with and all of that. Like that's, that stuff is really important to me. Um, So I knew from the start that I wanted to do it myself. Um, I also, I write music that is a little different from at least the composers that I am familiar, like that I kind of grew up playing their music or the composers that I went to school with that were studying composition. Like, because I don't have that formal training, I have lots of formal training in music, but not in composition specifically. So, um, yeah, I just... I wanted to just do it myself, I guess, long story short. <laughs> um, and so I learned how to use different programs to export the music and then make the parts look, you know, decent, um, legible for other people. And I have made a lot of mistakes on that front. Um, I think the scores and parts that I produce now are 100 times better than they were when I started um, because I know. I know better now and I I've seen um, I've gotten a lot of feedback from people about like this is we don't like to see this or you know this is an awkward page turn and I didn't consider that so there's there's been lots of things that I've learned over the years Um, so I think the way that I learned how to publish was just by publishing and (laughs) kind of trial and error like let's see what works and I do have lots of friends in the industry lots of conductors and um, other composers that I can kind of run things by like does this look good to you hey does someone want to take a look at this and see if they catch anything that stands out that's an error or um you know can someone print this out and see if it's too small you know before (laughs) i had a big scale printer like i really leaned on community i think when i first started and um, i gave music away for free or for like very little money at the beginning in exchange for a recording in exchange for the opportunity to hear the piece played so that I could get a sense of what worked and what didn't like, I don't know. It's, I don't have um, all the answers even still. It's just been a really um, like learning as I go kind of a process and I wouldn't have it any other way. Although there are lots of things that I wish there was a handbook for, you know, yeah. like even when you go to music school, There's so much about the business side of making a life as a musician that Mm -hmm. we all just have to figure out ourselves or amongst ourselves, like asking questions of other people in the space. And I I wish that there were more uh, discussions about money. I wish there were more discussions about your rights as a creator, Um, copyright stuff, licensing things. Like there's just so much that we have to figure out on our own. Um, so yeah, I'm very much still learning, um, but yeah. doing okay so far. <laughs> doing okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also wish that we had more conversations like that in school. Yeah. And I mean, there are schools out there that, music schools out there that do, like they do have music business courses, degrees, yeah. and like they Definitely. do talk about this, but it's not everywhere yet. And yeah. 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 I, um, I had 
just another flutist on the podcast last season and Mm -hmm. we were talking a lot about you know how uh well like it seems like when you're in when you're in school when you're in it it seems like the only options are really to become a band teacher or to become an orchestra player and yeah those are the only options and nothing else so but what like the reality is that you know not everybody's fit to be a teacher or Mm -hmm. you know not everybody has the discipline to practice to to be so dedicated to your craft to like rise to the level of an orchestral musician like it is hard and uh it is cool though to see that like everybody actually is making their own path like just another flutist is she's got the youtube thing going on and she's Mm -hmm. teaching and like she has her own studio now and you're doing this and like there are actually so many different ways that you can make money and and stuff but yeah totally yeah i think those are important discussions to have um you mentioned that not everyone's fit to be a teacher like it is an incredibly demanding job you know i know on this podcast you talk about mental health and things like that like that's also one of the reasons that i left my teaching job it was not that i didn't love it um and it was not entirely just that i wanted to be a composer it also was that i was incredibly burnt out Mm. and overworked and under-resourced and just trying to keep everything afloat somehow you know and that um physical mental emotional exhaustion is not something that everyone is able to manage sustainably on a long-term basis (laughs) um and i definitely learned that about myself and so i think the career that i've created now allows for more flexibility it allows me to move at my own pace and i think it's scary to kind of leave more um structured traditional uh pathways and forge your own but everyone that i know that's done it has said that it's worth it and i would agree so. mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm curious to know like how often do you get to hear the bands perform your music um yeah that's a cool question i think before the pandemic it was a lot more (laughs) um i was traveling a lot more and i was invited to be a guest composer for an honor band or a music festival or something like that like that kind of thing happened a lot more before the pandemic things like that are happening again now but my relationship with that side of my work has shifted a little bit and um i've been working with working through i guess some pretty severe creative burnout in the last Mm. couple of years um so i've had to prioritize my health and i've had to prioritize getting my projects done um so i've been doing less traveling and just the nature of you know, the difficulties throughout the pandemic, I think that also just shifted things a little bit. Um, But I get to hear recordings, which is great. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love it when people send me their concert programs, um, either like a PDF or sometimes if they've printed copies, they'll send it or send a picture of it or something. And it really makes me happy to know that my music is being played and heard um, all over the place. And um, I actually when I first started doing this, I made a map. I printed off a map of North America and just like a blank, you know, with all the 
states and provinces and stuff just blank. And I colored them in when I had a performance of my music in that um, place. And last year I was able to like completely it's filled in. So my concert music has been played in every province, every state in the U.S. Um, And now I have like a world one because there's countries all over the world as well. So although I don't maybe get to experience my music played live with me there as much as I would like to or as much as before, um, I am tracking it and it is incredibly motivating um, just to, to know that someone on the other side of the world has just purchased my music and to think of those kids that are now getting to play it. Like next week I, I have a Zoom call with an honor band in South Korea mm-hmm. and the students are coming from Vietnam, Japan, Thailand, like all, all over Asia and they're going to this festival and they're playing one of my pieces and I'm going to zoom in and talk to all of them. So this is like, they get to, to meet an Asian Canadian composer from the other side of the world. They're playing my music over there. Um, that stuff is just really cool to me. (laughs) That never gets old. (laughs) Um, yeah. And it is always a magical experience to hear my music played by real musicians, as opposed to the MIDI or the ideas that I have in my head. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really special part of, of the process. I think part of the reason that the burnout that I've been experiencing kind of started during the pandemic was actually because I was creating these works and not getting to hear them. Mm. Um, I think that took a lot out of me and I didn't realize it at the time, but it's a hugely vulnerable, personal, draining experience to create something and to put it out into the world and just it's like it's just in a void out there and you have no idea uh, how it's doing. <laughs> um, I think I think that was really starting to get to me um, because typically with a commission, especially the composer gets to attend the world premiere and be in the audience and sometimes even speak to the audience mm-hmm. or, or work with the performers ahead of time. Um, and those connections, I think, are really important in completing the creative process, like the cycle of the seed of an idea all the way to hearing the real thing, experiencing the real thing. So I think missing that um, has been part of the problem for me over the past few years. Um, But there are ways that we move (laughs) through it, so. (laughs) Yeah, what do you do to recover from burnout? Um, It's a good question. I don't know. I'm not the expert here. Um, it's still a very real situation for me that I'm working through. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly time in nature is healing for me. Um, I think taking a break is important. Um, so whether that's, you know, just taking a break in the day or a larger scale, like I'm going to take a few days, a few weeks, a few months, even like, I think just taking a step back and having some space from whatever it is that you're working on, like that can be helpful, but that's not always an option. Um, sometimes with, with deadlines, with, um, external pressures, with things that I said that I would do, or, you know, you don't always have 
the option to take as much time as, as you know, would be ideal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I've learned over the past few years that I think I like working slowly. Um, I like having the time to have an idea live within me for a bit before I have to make it into something that is for other people. And um, yeah, so I'm actually, as I finish up the last few commissions, um, I'm not taking any new commissions for the foreseeable future. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I'm giving myself, I'm saying at least a year. It might be more than that. I don't know how it's going to feel, but it's been five years um, of writing commissions and I, I need to reconnect with my personal process, I think, and recalibrate a little bit, um, spend time just as a music listener, as a, um, maybe even as a performer, like playing songs by other people or playing songs by me, but just not create and not feeling that, uh, pressure to continuously create new stuff. I'm, I'm happy with my concert music catalog. I'm just going to let it be for a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, I'm not, I'm going to come back to mm. band commissions, but I, I think part of healing from burnout is really properly distancing from, from that pressure and mm. reconnecting with myself and the things that make me, me and um, rekindling just the, the fire within, <laughs> like the, the desire to create. I, I feel that I've lost that a little bit mm. in the past couple of years. Um, when you make your passion, your work, like when you make the thing that you love, the thing that you do for money, your relationship with that thing drastically changes. Um, and it's not all bad, but it's, it, it's different for sure. So mm. I think I just need a period of time to really reset and then I'll go from there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you are feeling this burnout, but you do mm-hmm. have a commission deadline, have you yeah. ever kind of just like told them you can't and you you don't do it? Or has that ever happened um, or like been able to delay has. it? Yeah, I've definitely delayed things. The piece I finished last week was supposed to be done in December. Oh. <laughs> um and I'm thankful to have collaborators that are flexible, uh, not, not all the time, but in a lot of cases, um, they understand that what they're asking for is for me to create something for them. And, you know, it's mutually beneficial to make sure that what I'm delivering, it has had enough time to, um, really come to be something that I'm happy with. And it, it doesn't benefit anybody to rush. So although sometimes my collaborators are maybe disappointed to have to wait a little longer or frustrated uh, with just not understanding how that process goes, like commissions are not a transactional thing. I mean, a, a lot of people don't consider that, but it's not like, here's the money now in exchange, I get a thing. Like there's, there's so much more to it than that. Um and it's highly collaborative. I, I spend time understanding what they're looking for. And, you know, the band that I finished the piece for last week, I found out that there are certain instruments in, in that ensemble that those kids are like really keen and really strong. And so I made sure to tailor the piece to emphasize 
that ensemble's strengths while still making it something that other ensembles publicly after the premiere, like that it would still be suitable for them too. Right. It takes a lot of thought <laughs> to create something like that. Um, so yes, uh, I have asked for extensions. Um, I have told people that, you know, I, I could get it done this month, but if I have an extra few weeks, I think it would be better. Um, mm -hmm. And in all of those cases, I've been met with, yeah, take the time you need, or like, that makes sense to us. Um, you know, sometimes it's something like we have our concert date set and we were really hoping to perform this at this concert. So in those cases, it's a little bit less flexible because mm -hmm. it's not an open-ended deadline. Like, yeah, whenever you get it, we'll be excited. Sometimes it's like, it's for this occasion. Like I've written a couple of pieces that are celebrating, you know, the 100th anniversary of this organization or the 30th year of this national ensemble stuff like that. And so it's a little bit more time sensitive in those situations. Um, and I, I do keep that in mind, but, oh, it's tough. Sometimes it's, it's just like, yeah, because I feel so guilty about it. Right. Like they, yeah. it's, it's not cheap. Like they're, they're giving me money to create something for them and to feel, um, the fear of letting somebody down combined with the fear of pushing myself to the point of no return. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, combined with like I know that I can do it but I can't do it now or I know like yeah. there's just a lot of inner conflict that comes up in those kinds of situations um but open communication is always the best solution like asking for more time or just letting them know this is what I have so far let me know what you think but I'm gonna need a bit more time to finish it like I think people at the end of the day just are excited about it yeah. and um yeah yeah, yeah. What are kind of like the conversations that you have with uh, like a band director who wants to commission you for work? So I always ask for um, guidelines on duration, difficulty, instrumentation, and any like thematic requests. Um, maybe the piece is being commissioned, as I mentioned, you know, for a, a specific occasion um, to celebrate somebody's retirement or you know an anniversary or something like that so I like to know those things because that way I know am I writing a celebratory piece mm -hmm. am I writing something a little more somber to mark the occasion of something heavier am I, you know those kinds of conversations are important at the beginning um and then things like within instrumentation it's more than just yeah okay wind ensemble well <laughs> How many horn players do you have? How many percussionists do you have? Are there any areas within the band that are really strong or that need a little bit more support? Can I keep that in mind as I'm creating the parts? Because um, we were talking about how I would make decisions of which instruments get which things. And I take all of that into consideration um, based on the needs of the group. So we have lots of conversations about that stuff. Um, and then I like to ask them. How do you want to feel after the last note? Um, because it forces people to actually imagine that moment. Like, do you want to feel hopeful? Do you want to feel resolved? Do you want to feel that there's suspense? Like it's, it's a cliffhanger. Do you, like, how do you want to experience that moment where the sound has faded away? The audience hasn't clapped yet. Like, 
that sacred little moment there. Um, I love to prompt people with things like that. And their responses are really helpful for me in how I approach the, the piece. Um, I don't always do exactly what they want, but I try my best to take it into consideration and mix it in with my own agenda as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. If there's something that I really want to make, um, most of the time I can weave in something that's really personal to me and something that also is relatable and um, you know tailored to the the group or the person that's asked me to write it. Uh, and that's I think the most fun part about doing commissions, even though I'm going into a season of, of taking a break from that stuff, that is an aspect of it that I really love. Um, it's like a big puzzle, you know, how can I make this something that is true for me that came from, from me. Um, but that is also special for the people who commissioned it. Mm, How often, well, I mean, I guess you kind of mentioned like with your, with your burnout, it's because you don't really have time to create anything for yourself. But I yeah. was wondering, like, how often <laughs> if you ever get to create for yourself versus, you know, the ratio between that and making something for somebody else. Yeah, um, definitely the proportions are kind of skewed. Like I've, <laughs> I've been doing a lot of commissions <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that just happens because. I couldn't believe that people really wanted to pay me to make music for them. And I, especially in my first and second year, um, as a full-time composer, like I still was very worried that I wasn't going to make enough money. And so I really was just kind of saying yes to everything. And Mm -hmm. that was a mistake. (laughs) Um, but there's no way that I would have known that without living through it. So it's, it's all good, but there are things that I do for myself. Um, because I think it's important, even if music is your job, that you also have an outlet that is just for you personally. And so a couple years ago, I started learning how to play the banjo. Um, <laughs> that has nothing to do with my composer career. Yeah. It's just, I, I love learning new instruments. I find it really fun, uh, to be a beginner at something and start from scratch. And so, um, I enjoy learning new instruments. I enjoy um, playing covers of songs that I like and reimagining them in new ways. Um, I still, I don't write songs nearly as much as I used to. I'm hoping to get back into that this year as I wrap up the sort of band commissions chapter of the past five years and um, make space for different things. So, yeah, I would say the answer is not nearly as often as I would like um, lately, you know, making music for myself. But I'm I'm looking forward to doing more of that in the the next little while. Yeah. What? Why banjo? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's well, okay. the short story is there was a banjo here. Um, My partner is also a musician and he had a banjo that he never played that was just in the closet and I actually didn't realize that he had it listed on marketplace to try to sell and um on the day that I picked it up and just started noodling around with it that was the day that he found a buyer oh and he was like I was gonna sell that and I was like okay he goes but 
but if you're going to play it, like you can, I won't sell it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so luckily he didn't sell it. Um, oh. <laughs> it was just weird timing. Cause I, I don't know. I, I was listening to um, notes from the archive by Maggie Rogers. She released this album of songs that were old. So she felt that she wanted to honor her past self by recording, well, releasing recordings of music that she had written in high school and in her early 20s. Um, And she played the banjo on a lot of those early tracks. And if you listen to the version of the album that has her commentary, um, it's amazing because you get to hear some of the background stories of um, her process and her thoughts in present day about the music she'd written a long Mm -hmm. time ago. (laughs) It's really cool. And she talked about how she learned the banjo because as a teenager, everyone she was around, like all the guys played the guitar and all the guys played drums and bass. And um, she was one of the only girls. And she learned that if she played a different instrument that nobody played, she would always get to play. And so um, I, I mean, I don't necessarily think that's why I wanted to learn the banjo, but I was inspired by that story. I really liked her songs. And in order to play those songs, like, I mean, I could play them on the piano or the guitar, but I knew that my partner had a banjo and I was like, let's see if I can learn some Maggie <laughs> Rogers songs on this banjo that happens to be here. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I really loved it. It was a lot of fun. It was something completely different. I'm left-handed. So learning how to do finger picking with my right hand was like super hard. Nice. Yay, <laughs> lefties. Um, I find all the right hand like picking stuff with string instruments to be really challenging for me. Um, so I think it was just a fun way to push myself to do something new. And uh, I was able to tap into new genres of music too. Like now I listen to bluegrass music a lot and I did not listen to bluegrass music before I started playing the banjo. So it's opened up a lot of things for me. Um, and it's really fun. And it's something that I don't have to do in a serious way necessarily. Like I can just do it because it's fun. Yeah. Um, so that's not like personal projects necessarily, but it's just like things that I do to keep my relationship with music a fun one as well Mm -hmm. in addition to a stressful work fueled thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah, I feel that I I talked about it before on the podcast but you know like going to school for flute performance Mm -hmm. like that gets pretty I got pretty burnt out with that and so songwriting playing guitar has always just been my fun side hobby that's just always kept me going so like Mm -hmm. yeah like I didn't have to think about theory or anything on the guitar (laughs) so it's nice to have that outlet and just you know be able to do whatever you want without any you know yeah yeah I agree (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so it seems like you travel a lot and you know you'd go into nature a lot um what's like what's your favorite place that you've been to and or where would you want to visit hmm okay um first thing that comes to mind is just anything in the pacific northwest (laughs) um every time i have the opportunity to visit the west coast i just feel like i belong here (laughs) do you think Um, you'd move there yes i i would love to um (laughs) 
Not immediately, like not in the immediate future, but um, I I have a life goal of living in BC. Um, maybe not forever, like permanently, but even just for a year or two. Like I think that's something that I would like to experience. Um, my ancestors uh, were from BC mm-hmm. um, on my Japanese side of my family. Um, they settled in Victoria, BC. Um, and before the war, well, like the second world war um, led to the forced displacement and incarceration of Japanese Canadians. So my family ended up in Ontario, mm-hmm. um, completely disconnected from the Japanese Canadian community in BC. And I feel very strongly that my family would have stayed in BC if that was an option. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were farmers and um, very connected to nature as well. Even the part of Japan that they came from was like a beautiful lake with forests and stuff. So I, I do feel that it's in my blood to be connected with with nature in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it would be really fulfilling and inspiring and magical uh to to live in in bc at at least for some period of time so that's definitely a a life goal of mine Mm -hmm. um i i really enjoy visiting like anywhere that i have the opportunity to visit and i i don't really like cities that much so if i (laughs) if i'm going somewhere for work and it's in a city i will find the nearest like national park or state park or or even just like small wooded area or like a bog or um i i get a lot of um energy and inspiration from just spending time in different places mm-hmm. um getting to know the the native plants and animals and birds and things to a, a particular place that brings me a lot of joy so i don't have a favorite but i i do feel that those like big old growth forests are really magical and beautiful and um mountains are always nice to see even if off in the distance um but i've i live in southwestern ontario i've i've really come to love the wetlands um <laughs> it's such a unique ecosystem and it's home to so many beings that are so inspiring to me so i i think everyone kind of idolizes the you know people that are naturey and outdoorsy it's like we idolize the big mountainous landscapes and like but there's actually so much to be discovered even in urban um wildlife areas right like even in cities there are pockets that are you know there are city trees there mm-hmm. are streams ravines that go through the city of Toronto there are waterways that you know provide a lot of habitat. So I don't know. I think I don't really have a good answer to that, just that any anywhere. Um, but I would love to visit Japan. I think that would that's important for me and mm-hmm. the kind of identity work that I've been doing as well, reconnecting with sides of myself that I've suppressed for a long time. So visiting Japan would be really cool. I think my favorite place though was my grandparents' place when I was growing up, um, a cabin cottage whatever you want to call it, um, in Northern Ontario. Um, so that's definitely kind of where all of my love of nature started. So that'll always be my favorite. Yeah. Sorry. My mind was just like, is cottage a, a East coast thing that people I say? So. And then West coast people say cabins. I think so. It's like the same thing, but I think here yeah. we say cottage, but it's a cabin. 
it's the same. Yeah. yeah like we say, <laughs> I hear people say cabins, like when they want to mm-hmm. go visit their cabin in the mountains, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really it's, say cottage. <laughs> yeah. I think the cottage gives the feel of like, especially now it's, they're not even really cabins. The, the cottages that are made now are like these mansions that are on <laughs> waterfront properties. Right. So that's not what I'm talking about. Like I'm talking about a more rugged, like mm-hmm. cabin in a forest on a water kind of thing. Um, that's been in my family forever but yeah it's it's funny that like regional discrepancies of how we talk about things <laughs> yeah. yeah do you think that like is it your grandparents influence that got you so interested in in all these all the wildlife and all the nature um yeah i mean i i don't think that anyone specific like showed me anything it was just I was very curious as a child. I wanted to know everything about everything. And so (laughs) like if a bird, I think most people, it's like, oh, that's a bird. But I'd be like, what is that bird? Do they live here all the time? Where do they fly to? Where did they fly from? Like, I just had so many questions about everything. And um, luckily my, my family members um, entertained that for the most part and, (laughs) and, you know, supported that interest. And um, my mom is an avid gardener. So maybe less so on the like wilderness kind of side of things, but, but she was always planting flowers and we grew tomatoes and raspberries in the backyard and stuff like that. So I I think I I did grow up around those kinds of influences. Um, And my grandfather like showed me how to use binoculars so we could see the loons on the lake really far away. And so it's little things like that. There was, there was never anyone who was an expert in anything, but the support was there when I showed interest. So, mm. yeah, Aww, that's cute. I'm just yeah. imagining, like, you know, when little kids just keep asking why, yeah. or like you had more specific whys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, why is the female cardinal brown and the male cardinal's red? And what? Like, I just wanted to know everything about everything. Oh, um, I'm still like that. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah. that really plays into the concepts of your compositions that you mentioned earlier like how Mm -hmm. you come up with those like you're thinking about all these things and that plays into how you compose that's really definitely (laughs) yeah thanks (laughs) um yeah speaking about all this nature and trees and wilderness and everything like Mm -hmm. forest therapy you're a forest (laughs) guide (laughs) i am like what is that and what does that entail (laughs) Um, yeah, so I'm a certified forest therapy guide. Um, forest therapy uh, or forest bathing. I don't know if you've heard of forest bathing. Um, mm-hmm. In Japan, it's called Shinrin Yoku. Um, and that translates to taking in the forest atmosphere or bathing in the forest. And essentially, it's a form of mindfulness that is based in nature connection. Um, and it involves experiencing nature through all of our senses. Um, so the more obvious ways to connect with nature, like if you go for a walk, maybe you're looking around at all the different uh, things around you. Um, but sometimes we forget that, you know, if we pay attention to the smells, if we pay attention to the sounds, if, if we really stop and notice what's happening around us, um, we can really connect with an environment in a deeper way. And the, I guess, goal 
we don't really talk about goals, but mm-hmm. <laughs> the idea of, you know, why someone might try forest therapy um, is just essentially to kind of arrive at a, a state of um, awareness and mindfulness. Some people might refer to it as a meditative state or a flow state or a state of interconnectedness. There's lots of different words. Um, but uh, my role as a guide is to help people find that state of connection um, because it's a little bit different. A forest therapy walk is a little bit different than a, a naturalist walk or just a, a walk in the woods for exercise or for um, foraging or, you know, like there's lots of different amazing purposes of going for a walk. Um, but a forest therapy walk is very slow, very mindful. And I offer prompts uh, for nature connection. So um, something would be like, you know, we would arrive at a point in a, in a forest, let's say, and I would invite you to notice what's in motion. And so everyone just standing, looking around, like, Maybe the obvious things are the trees are swaying or if it's fall, the leaves are moving or something. But as you spend 10, 15 minutes, like really taking in what's in motion, people notice ants moving on the ground or like a woodpecker making its way up the side of a tree really far away. Like it takes time to really come into your uh, surroundings and to achieve that level of awareness where you're noticing things that are not so obvious at first sight. Um, and I love the sound-based invitations where it's, you know, um, not just noticing what sounds you hear, but specifically what are the farthest sounds, like the sounds that are the farthest away and what are the sounds that are closer to you? What are the sounds that are moving? And, um, there's, there's just so much that is available to us to be noticed. And sometimes we are moving at such a fast pace in society. There's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure um, that we don't feel that we have the time to stop and notice those things. Um, so I see my role as a guide as just being um, like, the, I'm not a therapist. Nature is the therapist, um, but I help people connect in ways that they may not have thought of on their own or may not have made the time for on their own. Um, and it, it can help with uh, improved quality of sleep, reducing stress, lowering blood pressure. It can boost creativity and focus. It can help people develop empathy. It can help children um, in so many ways with making connections with one another and with themselves and their emotions and finding some language um, to express those things. So it's it's something that I've been doing on my own for a long time, um, but it was only last year that I considered that I might be able to offer this to other people who may not have considered it. So uh, I did the certification last year. And so that's a relatively new side of my work. Um, mm-hmm. But as I take some time away from missions and things like that, I, I'm creating space to lean into this kind of work a little bit more. So I'm excited about that. That's yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Thanks for asking about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a uh, a lot it sounds a lot more fun than like mindful meditation when you're just like here, <laughs> when you're just like in your room. Cuz like mm-hmm. yeah, 
I we would we used to do that before my flute lessons and and you would just the sounds that you would hear are just like the trumpet next door (laughs) (laughs) people having their lessons or like the air conditioning turned on stuff like that Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah that is really cool how did you even find like how do you get certified in this (laughs) (laughs) yeah there are a couple of different schools that offer courses um some are retreat based so it's it's similar to like a yoga teacher training kind of thing where you have a private, like a personal practice. Um, but some people at some point feel that they want to be able to facilitate that for others as well. And will go seek out that kind of training. Um, so there are a few different schools that offer guide training. Um, some of them, like I said, are, are through retreats. Like you go for a condensed intense period of time. Um, others are more self-paced um the course that i took was uh, a combination of online and outside Mm -hmm. so we had weekly online sessions where we worked through the different concepts and had lots of discussions it was a small group about 10 of us that was in the in the course um and we could really offer a lot of support to one another Um, and then we also had we had to do practice um walks ourselves guiding each other guiding people in our lives um taking people out and trying things and then we would come back to our class and give each other feedback so um it was really fulfilling it was really fun i met some people that are just as passionate about nature connection as i am and it was it was a really cool thing so i'm glad that i i did that the school that i did my training through is called the forest therapy school it is what it sounds like. <laughs> um, and it was founded by two women and one of them is an artist. And um, I was just really drawn to their approach to training other guides. And um, I'm happy that I did it. It was really cool. Wow. Um, I, I wanted to mention also, cause you, you said something about how it sounds more fun than like <laughs> meditation. I, so earlier in this conversation, I mentioned that I like, I come up with my best ideas when I'm in motion. Right. Um, on a similar note, I cannot meditate sitting down. <laughs> um, I've tried many, many times over the years. It just doesn't work for me very well. Um, I have a lot of anxiety, like a lot of the time. And so I think if I'm just sitting with no external stimuli, I'm like going through all the things in my head. Mm-hmm. However, when I'm outside, not necessarily in a forest therapy setting, but even just like in my backyard or going for a walk in the neighborhood or paddling on a kayak or whatever, like just something outside that involves movement. I can access that meditative state <laughs> quite easily. Oh, that's <laughs> um, interesting. So yeah. So as soon as I realized that about myself, I realized there are other people out there that are like me and I bet I could help them because we see a lot of stuff on social media in um, things that we read and articles about mental health and how, how helpful meditation and mindfulness is in managing Mm -hmm. mental health concerns. And yet so many of us struggle with doing those things. Mm -hmm. And I think that walking as a form of therapy and nature connection as a form of therapy is a relatively untapped resource. Like I think that's something that so many people can benefit from. And a lot of people just maybe don't know where to start. Um, so 
that's my goal personally is just to to help other people find what I have found through uh, nature nature based mindfulness as opposed to the sit and meditate silently yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it's really nice that you want to give back in that way and have an impact on other people in that way. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so we have a couple Patreon questions. Um, oh, cool. Chris asks, what is the most challenging aspect of be- being a composer and what is the most rewarding? Hmm, okay. The most rewarding, I think I've spoken about a little bit during this conversation and it's definitely it's the impact that I'm able to make on other musicians other communities um and that the fulfillment that comes from um knowing that musical ideas that I've shared have somehow impacted other people in a positive way there's nothing that compares to that. Like that's a really, really cool thing that I get to call my job. Um, and hearing my music played by developing musicians, like I think a lot of composers would kind of cringe at like, oh, mm-hmm. it's so out of tune oboe and, you know, the snare player's lost and all sorts of stuff. I actually get a lot of enjoyment <laughs> out of hearing that because um as a former teacher and as a former student, like I know what it's like to be in those early stages of figuring out how music works, figuring out how to play your instrument, how to listen to each other and um, how to play together. And the idea that that learning is happening in the context of my music Mm. is really, really cool to me. Um, So I'm less concerned about a perfect performance. and I'm more interested in are people learning through the music that I've given them? Are people making connections with the world around them or with each other, you know, through the music that I've shared? Um, and if I can check that box off as a yes, then then nothing else really matters as much to me. So that's definitely the most rewarding. Mm-hmm. The most challenging, um, I think working through burnout is really hard. <laughs> um, the, the pressure of deadlines is, is challenging. Um, the expectations, once you've found some success as an artist, there are expectations for you to maintain something, whether it's always to sound the same or to create music that has the same kind of impact as what you've already made. Or like my most popular piece is called chasing sunlight and pretty much every commission that I get, um, that I got after after that piece came out was we love chasing sunlight can you write us a piece just like that and I'm like (laughs) not really because I already made that um and I know what they mean is that they want something in that style or you know these are the things that we like about your work can you make something else that's kind of like that but I find it challenging to strike the balance between coming up with new fresh engaging exciting material and staying true to my own voice while pleasing the people that are paying me to make the music. Like it it is always a challenge, I think, to, to balance all of those elements. Yeah, for sure. That, yeah, that's a lot to have to consider. (laughs) Um, Chris also asked, how has nature and being a forest therapy guide influenced your music and vice versa? Yeah. Um, 
aside from the obvious, like a lot of my music is inspired by nature. Um, I think that being a forest therapy guide and, and leaning more into that practice personally has helped me refine my creative process a little bit. Um, because I, I mentioned, you know, going for long walks to come up with ideas and things like that. But now that I actually have a forest therapy practice, there's sort of a flow that I can take myself through in a little bit more of a formal way. Whereas before I'd be like, I'm just going to power walk it out and figure it out. And <laughs> I, I think that tapping into the mindfulness aspect of nature connection has definitely helped with my mental health and having a little bit more stability mental health wise helps me be a little bit more present and focused in my composing and it's subtle, right? Like it, it's not like, oh, drastically all of a sudden everything's different. But I think that maintaining a mindfulness practice has just allowed for a little bit more space mentally, you know, and even amidst really hard burnout and stuff, I'm able to make space for ideas because of um, this. Yeah. Because of that nature practice, I guess. Um, and on a more like literal level, um, we live in an area where there's a lot of migratory birds passing through. I have definitely come up with melodies and rhythmic concepts from birds. Um, and I have watched swarms of birds move through the sky and I have created a melodic contour that follows that. And I've gotten to know the habits of the different birds um, that visit our feeders in the backyard and that build nests in our trees and stuff like that. And like, that's such a special relationship to have with the land and with the others that share it, you know, like, so there are endless ways that my relationship with nature overlaps with my relationship with music. And I don't think that I don't think that I would exist as a musician the way I do if I wasn't um, as connected with nature as I am. Like, I, I think that they just are the same thing in a sense. And um, being a forest therapy guide is just a new way to encourage people to connect with nature, just as writing music about nature is a way to encourage people to connect with it. Right. So it's just like using a, a different platform almost to achieve a similar goal. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, Fong asks, looking back at what you've done so far, what piece of work are you most proud of and why? That's a great question and a really hard question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's what there... everybody says about Fong's questions, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. They're making us think. Um, <laughs> Okay, maybe I'll give a couple of examples. So I have a piece called Tundra. Um, it was originally written for euphonium and piano, but I've adapted it for a few other instruments and I'm adapting it for a full band as well. Um, but this piece was written about my experience of living with depression and the relationship between the solo instrument and the piano um, is meant to kind of, represent the relationship between a person 
with depression and a support system, whether that's another person, a group of people, a community, you know, whatever, um, whatever applies to the people playing it, hopefully. <laughs> um, and that was just a very, very challenging project for me to take on. The person that commissioned it was creating a recital of all music about mental health. And um, most of the pieces existed already, but they wanted something new that was written just for them. Mm. And knowing that I was writing something for somebody who had that same lived experience, it, it put a lot of pressure on me to accurately and sensitively represent the experience of living with depression. Mm. Um, and it was also just very personal and vulnerable for me to express that side of myself through my work. So I feel proud of myself for doing that. Um, there were many moments in that process that I wanted to give up <laughs> and be mm. like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. It's too hard. Um, but I did it. And um, yeah, so I, I wouldn't say that that's my favorite piece of music that I've ever created, but it's definitely an example of being really proud of my work. Um, because it was just something a little different. It was not a nature inspired. Well, it ended up being because <laughs> tundra is an area where it's permanently frozen and there's, there's not a lot of growth happening there. And the things that do grow and the animals that do live there, uh, and the people that do live in, in those environments have to work incredibly hard, um, to, you know, to, to exist in a way that is comfortable, that is meaningful, that is um, healthy and safe. And I drew that metaphor, you know, the tundra environment as a metaphor for um, living with depression and how sometimes there's just nothing there. <laughs> yeah. And to, to create something from nothing or to still thrive in a frozen ecosystem that's what it feels like a lot of the time um, to move through life with this kind of mental illness that is always there. Um, so yeah, I, I'm careful to answer the question, not, not like a favorite piece of mine, but what I'm most proud of. And that's definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm proud of everything. I, I think every piece has a meaningful backstory and just, just showing up as a, woman of color anywhere in, in spaces where that's not the norm is kind of an act of resistance in a way, like just taking up space at all. Um, so I think I'm, I'm proud of myself for doing that even when it's been difficult. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good answer. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Before we wrap up, I wanted to touch on uh, your po your podcast because you have yeah. you have a podcast. <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Thanks for asking. So my friend Dylan Maddox and I co-host a podcast called the Band Room Podcast, and we speak with music educators, conductors, composers, performers, lots of people that are connected to, um, I guess, the music education world. Most of the time, it's it's band like concert band oriented people but we speak to a variety of guests um, who do a lot of different things and it's truly a highlight of like of any week or or month that I get to record episodes it's so inspiring to hear the stories of other artists and educators I'm sure you can relate this yeah. you know 
part of the goal of creating a podcast like like ours and like yours um, is to be able to share those stories with whoever will listen. But I think there's also a little bit of selfishness in there too. Like we get to talk to people that we're inspired by. We get to talk to people and have really, really interesting conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very fulfilling thing to do. So Dylan and I are both Canadian and we, we have some sponsorships from Canadian music organizations. So we try to feature Canadian musicians and music educators as much as we can. Um, but we talk to people from all over the world and um, try to showcase the lives of people working in in band and music ed in a variety of ways. So, um, yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, so you can find my website, which is katenishimura.com, and that's all my concert music. Um, to order copies of scores and listen to reference recordings and read program notes and all of that. Um, and on social media, I am at Composer Kate, and you can find me on Instagram and well, all the places, but I would say I'm most active on Instagram. Um, I also have an Instagram page for my forest therapy stuff, and that is um, Forest Guide Kate. And Kate is spelled C A I T. A little unconventional. Um, so yeah. Awesome. And I will link everything, including your podcast and everything. Thank um, you. Where the links are. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is a really nice conversation. It was really great to get to know you better. Um, and yeah, you're making an impact in this in this uh space. It's really cool to see. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me and I enjoyed this conversation too. And I I love seeing what you're doing with music online and everything. So let's keep in touch. (laughs) Thank you.